What's your name? Aaron Seeley. How many years did you pitch in the major leagues? Uh, 14 plus. And what is your current occupation? I'm a pro scout with the Chicago Cubs. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, our guest is former Major League pitcher Aaron Seeley. He had a very good career. He also had a fascinating career. The number of teammates and the number of significant parts of baseball history that he was involved are quite interesting. And uh, we're going to test his memory. I know he's a good storyteller, and I know this is going to be a lot of fun. Aaron Seeley is next on Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. All right, Aaron. Well, thanks so much for joining me, especially on a somewhat short notice here in Albuquerque. Yeah, no problem. Love to be here. Okay, so a lot of times when I do these podcasts, I get into the habit of just talking chronologically about a guy's career, and I don't want to get into that habit. So I came up with nine themes. Baseball has nine innings, so I have nine themes. Some of these innings could be a one, two, three, three up, three down, and we might have the bases loaded in some of these others for how long they'll take. Just like my career. (laughs) Some are easy, some are not. All right, so we're going to start with inning one, but in order to set the tone, I want to make sure that our audience has the full background with your introduction. As he said, 14-plus years in the major leagues. From 1993 through 2007, five years with the Red Sox, Rangers for two years, Mariners for two years, Angels for three, back to the Mariners for one, Dodgers won, and then the Mets, final year in 2007. He started 352 games. That is the 209th most in Major League history. He threw 2,153 innings, 148 wins. He finished third in Rookie of the Year voting in 1993. All-Star in 1998 and 2000. He did not go to the All-Star game in 1999, but he still finished fifth in Cy Young voting, and he also pitched in the postseason for three different years. That is a very good career. Most people would not consider that a Hall of Fame, but one person did. Have you ever found out who was the one person who voted for you for the Hall of Fame? You know what? I have no idea who it is, and uh, let's set the table for that. Obviously, I know that's not a Hall of Fame career. Most people know that's not a Hall of Fame career, but... That was the year that Roger Clemens and the PED users were prominent. That was that that big push. And I think whoever voted for me, I think, went, wow, he had a really reasonable career for somebody who didn't use steroids, and that's pretty cool, so it's a tip of the hat kind of thing. That's the story I'm going with. And Would you ever want to know who it was? No, I don't think it, I don't think it matters. I think, okay. um, you know, I felt like... Um, other people might disagree, but I felt like throughout my career, I had a really good relationship with the media. Um, and there's a lot of back and forth. And I think, I think this generation of players really starting to see it with, with the, um, Twitter and the Instagram stuff and how they can interact and, and use media to help promote themselves. Um, you know, back, (laughs) back when I played, um, we didn't have 
such in-your-face kind of stuff. And so you had to build relationships with writers and things like that. And um, it, it, it's, like I said, I take it as a tip of the cap to a nice career doing a during a era of baseball where it was really hard to pitch and be productive. So you did not uh, have a bet with a writer and the writer lost or anything like that, right? <laughs> no. Because I heard this story, and I was trying to find somewhere online to see if I could get all the details, but I heard a story involving Walt Weiss, because Walt Weiss also got one vote. And apparently there was some late night in Chicago with a writer early in Weiss's career, and the writer lost the bet. And as a result of that, like 20-something years later, he voted for Walt Weiss for the Hall of Fame. (laughs) That's a way better story than I have for you. (laughs) All right, that's the end of inning one. Three up, three down. Way to go. Yeah. All right, inning two. The theme is you and Scott Hatterberg. Yes. You guys went to college together at Washington State for three years. You guys were both drafted in the same year by the same team. You went 23rd overall to the Red Sox. He went 43 overall to the Red Sox. He caught you at Winter Haven, at New Britain, at Pawtucket. He caught you in the major leagues. What if you two had hated each other? <laughs> It'd be really hard to do because he's just that nice of a guy. I mean, anybody that has hair as good as Brad Pitt <laughs> right. to, to, to play the to play in Moneyball like he did, I mean, you know, you, you got to roll with that. Uh, what was the first time that you met Scott Hatterberg? Um, fall of my freshman year, which was uh, 1988. Um, I showed up late to Washington State. Um, we'd been playing in a national summer tournament or something. Um, literally showed up on campus, grabbed my uniform, and we jumped on these vans to go play up in a uh, semi-pro tournament up in Grand Forks, Canada. So riding up in one of the vans, the freshmen were all shoved in the back, and that was part of the group. And what was what was the immediate, how quickly did you guys take to one another? Um, yeah, that's probably a loaded question. You probably <laughs> right. need to ask him, right? <laughs> right. Um, no, I mean, he is, he's, he's so, I mean, we're both outdoors-oriented. He grew up in Yakima, Washington, big, big hunting and fishing guy, um, you know, and that's, that's kind of my background. I grew up in a small town outside of Seattle, and, and, you know, my parents are from northern Minnesota and self-sufficient farms kind of deal, and so a lot of, a lot of the outdoor activities, that's how we kind of bonded over. And then obviously being a catcher, um, you have to deal with them every day, and, and I didn't really have a choice at that point, <laughs> right. but he's, he's, he's great. Um, we were college roommates uh, during our junior year, so obviously that was a lot of pressure going on with both of us supposedly being high picks and all that stuff and um i've stayed in touch with him on and off the the kind of the funny side story of the deal is he's got three daughters and i have four okay so i kept like really scott come on what 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 did you do to me so uh were you guys in each other's weddings no you were not in each other's weddings were you ever roommates away from the field after college yeah in in pro ball in pro ball yeah yeah we kind of we he kind of leapfrogged ahead of me, um, and then when I got called up to Double A, I just I slept on the floor with him and his, his, his fiance at the time. But I slept on the floor, and they had a bedroom and you know minor league baseball stuff. Yeah, exactly. What? Um, who was more like the adult, and who was the more the kid in the relationship with you two? <laughs> relationship. Now we're <laughs> taking it to another level. Um, you know what? It, it's early on. It, it would have to be me. I was a little more. Basic Scott was um, more ADD in terms of things that he that that he was excited about. Uh, play the guitar, lots of music, lots of movies, um, things like that. And and he was he was you know he'd play the guitar, set it down on the floor, walk away, start listening to some CDs. There'd be CDs scattered all over the place, and he'd turn around and go do something else. And you're like, hey, Pigpen, come back and pick up after yourself. <laughs> right. So in that regard, probably me. 
Okay, if you were to add up all the times that Scott Hatterberg caught you between college and minor league baseball and major league baseball, what would be more, Hatterberg or all the other catchers in your life? I'm going with all the other catchers in my life. I may not have had more fun with the other ones than I do with Scott. Right. Um, we had we had a incident in Boston where the pitching coach was calling pitches, which was really unheard of back then, and. I didn't agree with it, and Scott didn't agree with it, but he was kind of rolling with it. And he wanted to throw a fastball, and I said no. And he put down fastball and then kind of nodded his head towards the dugout, and I said no. And he starts laughing. I can see him laughing in the mask. And so he puts down curveball. And he's, like, literally his shoulders are just shaking because he's laughing so hard. And I go, like, yes. And we get him out, throw the curveball, get the guy out. We get in the dugout, and the pitching coach runs to Scott. What's going on? I told you to throw the fastball. He goes, he points at me, he goes, talk to him. I'm like, wait a minute. So we had a lot of those kind of moments. One thing that I recall from my time covering the Oakland A's was that Scott Hatterberg is at his locker, and he's filling out a New York Times crossword puzzle, and he's finishing it in less than an hour. Yeah. C- could you ever finish one? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I, could, uh, yeah. I think that's part of the... Um, Pre-electronics um, baseball. Okay, you know if you are if you are in a locker room and as much as we were back in the day, I think that was part of it. You would pick up crossword puzzles and do things like that, play card games, and yeah. What did not you... as fast as him, by the way. He's he's sharp. Yeah, he's really sharp. It's intimidating how sharp how sharp he is. I mean, I remember as the times as a writer, just thinking, I'm supposed to be the smart, educated, you know, newspaper reporter here. He's supposed to be the dumb jock, and I'm like, I'm kind of intimidated by how smart <laughs> this guy is right now. Yeah, he, he had it together. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned uh, Moneyball and Brad Pitt. What did you think when you saw Chris Pratt playing Scott Hatterberg? Like, this is my friend. This is my friend from college, and there's a movie, and there's a guy playing him. This is the, the sad thing about this whole Moneyball. I've never read the book, and I've never seen the movie. By design? No, just random stuff. You know, um, I, I own the book, and I want to read the book before I see, see the movie. Plus, it's about Scott, and it's like, okay, well... You know, it, it's you, we're looking at it a different light. Whatever. I mean, I played through the era. I know all the players involved. Um, I for, I I think it's great because Billy Bean gets credit for looking at baseball in a different light. But you also forget he had three of the best pitchers in the American League. And when you have that, I don't care what formula you put out there, you're going to be pretty good. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, so yeah, it's no, not by design at all. So, but I haven't seen it. Okay, one last topic about Scott Hatterberg. <laughs> he has. Uh, Probably the most epic regular season home run in Oakland A's history. It's when they won their 20th game in a row, September 4th, 2002. Now, you were with the Angels at the time, and uh, what often gets forgotten about that A's winning streak is, number one, the players nearly went on strike toward the end of it. I think it was at 15 in a row when what the strike date was. And the Angels went something like 16-4 and four or 15-5 and five during that 20-game winning streak. Um, so what do you remember about that home run in that moment in time is your team and his team are both trying to get to the playoffs. Yeah, it's, it's funny because, yeah, they were on an epic tear, obviously. Um, really good ball club, playing well at the time. And I think at the time it was they only pulled one or two games. I, I forget who was in first and who was in second. But we were neck and neck. But it was the gap only got closed or stretched by a couple games over that time period. Yeah. And that's, you know, there's, there's times in the – you have to play the big picture game over six months when you're at the, in the, at the major league level, and everybody's going to get on runs and, and hot streaks or whatever. The Angels that year, we had the um, worst April in the history of Angels baseball. We ended up winning the World Series. So 
we started out slow. We got hot. They got super hot. They faded. We were able to catch them. And yeah. All right. Any three is about the Seattle Mariners when you're a kid. Okay. So you grew up in, uh, is, it, is it pronounced Paulsbo? Paulsbo. Paulsbo, Washington. Yep. That's a Scandinavian town on the uh, Kitsap Peninsula. Yep. So I was looking at Google Maps. Would you drive to Bainbridge Island and then take the car ferry to get to the kingdom? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I lived I lived out by the Hood Canal Floating Bridge, which is kind of an iconic thing out there on the, on the Puget Sound. And then, yeah, you'd drive over and you'd just park your car. You'd walk onto the ferry. The ferry puts you right downtown. I mean, it's beautiful in the summertime when you're... Coming across the sound, skyline of Seattle, and you got the mountains behind it. It's 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 beautiful. Um, but yeah, and then we'd walk into the kingdom and buy your seventy-five cent second deck left field ticket, where the guard would leave after the second inning because there was like a, you know six thousand people in the stadium. Mm-hmm. So as soon as he left, then you would walk through his gate and walk all the way down and sit right behind the the dugouts. Okay, who were your favorite players? Uh, Jimmy Presley, okay. third baseman, yep. um, big fan. Um, had a had chance to meet him when he was the hitting coach in Miami when I was still playing. Um, super nice guy. Um, Mark Langston, um, don't know why the left-handed pitcher over a right-handed pitcher, but he was really good. Had the big sweeping curveball. Um, had a chance to meet him later in my career, too. Um, you know, and honestly, the Mariners were so bad in the in the late 70s and early 80s that we used to go in and, and like, the Minnesota Twins would come into town, and we'd go watch them. Yeah. Um, and so Kirby Puckett was my favorite player growing up, and come watch him play. I, I can relate to that because before – so I grew up in the Bay Area, and before they got good in the late 80s, in the early to mid-80s, they were terrible. And so we would go when, yeah, let's go to see the Red Sox and Jim Rice, or let's go to see the Yankees, let's go to see the Royals and George Brett. Like yeah. you went based on the other team that was in town. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I was um, – you know, some – I was at the All-Star game, I think it was 78 or 79. Really? Yeah. You know, third deck. I mean, I think I could touch the roof of the kingdom. Uh-huh. Um, and then I was there at uh, Gaylor Perry, got his 300th win there. Really? So I was at those. Those are memorable young uh, Mariner uh, events. Yeah. Would you be the type that would arrive early and trying to get autographs or chase balls and batting practice, or would you just, like, arrive when the game starts and then you and your family leave? No, I was always the uh, – I was always – if we if – we, so it's all based on the ferry schedule. Okay. <laughs> so, right. so if you catch the early ferry, you're there way early. If you catch the late ferry, you get there at game time. Okay. So, but if I was there early, I was just in awe of watching these major leaguers play. It's it's we didn't have YouTube. We didn't have the instant you know pull up the video and check out you know Giancarlo Stanton's swing right away. We had to watch Jimmy Presley take his swings. What was he doing? How was he balanced? How do you know how does the swing play? What's his routine? Is he hitting you know first round all the right field? Is he bunting? What is he doing? And I was so locked into the process of that uh, um, that that held my attention a lot more than chasing guys down for autographs. Okay. So in 1989, when Ken Griffey Jr. makes his major league debut, you're still in high school, right? 89 is, is in college. You're in college. Oh, okay. So then you weren't really part of like the in, – in Pullman, were you still part of, oh, my God, this is junior and, and this is the next superstar in baseball? Or kind of where's your mind in with where his career is at that time? <laughs> Mine was probably like, who are the Cougs playing in football this weekend, <laughs> right. and what party am I going to? <laughs> right. um, no, you, no, he was, I mean, obviously the kid was the great thing coming, and, you know, they tried to sell it as a father-son thing early, and um, always a big Mariners fan. Um, still really kind of following because I have a lot of close friends now after playing up there and that are still up there working, but um, I just think your hometown team is is kind of where your, your heart is mm-hmm. all the time. And so, yeah, it 
I remember him coming up, but it wasn't, I mean, I had so much going on and being in college and, and it wasn't as accessible as it is now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So. Okay. So I bring that up because that leads us to inning four, which is when you join the Seattle Mariners as a player. Again, we're bouncing around. I don't want to go chronologically <laughs> like, like the way that I always do. Okay. So you become a free agent after the 1999 season. That was the year that you finished fifth. That was the year that Pedro Martinez was on another planet with his performance. Um, Initially, you signed with the Orioles, but they backed out. Is this correct? Yeah, they have a uh, interesting uh, track record of that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I was, I was the, I think the second guy um, who had, I mean, re- in re- that time period that had done that. They had done it like a year earlier with somebody. Um, yeah, I signed. Um, wanted to stay in Texas, and for whatever reason, they weren't interested in meeting whatever, whether it was years or dollars or whatever it was back then. Um, so I signed a four-year contract in Baltimore, went and had my physical, doctor welcomed me to the team, and then two hours later, Peter Angelos called and said, yeah, we don't want to do it for four, but let's do it for three. Same money, everything. We're like, well, wait a minute, what's the deal here? And it just felt really dirty is a really good way to say it. And mm-hmm. So we walked. We walked away from it, went and got a second opinion from Dr. Yoakum, um, and about three days after that, I signed a two-year contract with Seattle. And this is your hometown team? Hometown team. Yep. Now, according to baseball reference, you signed on January 10th, 2000. Mm-hmm. And I bring up the Ken Griffey Jr. story because he gets yeah. traded one month later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah I, was, I was teammates on paper mm-hmm. for a month. I never, you know, I, I honestly, I don't even know if I've really met him, you know. So having gone from a four-year deal to we want it to be three to we signed a two with a hometown team, what's kind of, where's your, um, you know, what, what are your emotions going into the 2000 season at that point? Well, it's pretty interesting because I I got traded out of Boston, um, you know, was there for almost five years, really chaotic time there with the front office, two general managers, I had three managers, I had like nine pitching coaches, lots of turnover, they were still trying to figure it out, Um, and so when I got out of there and I got settled in Texas, which is a little more um, low-key, really stable organization at the time, I, I kind of found a comfort zone. Um, not, I loved Boston. I think Boston's spectacular. My uh, daughter's at Northeastern right now, and I love going back to see her, and, and it's a great place. But I just kind of found a comfort zone. The talent was a little bit better at the time, um, and I just my two years there were spectacular, and I wanted to stay. Didn't work out that way, so then I ended up in Baltimore, and the East Coast vibe of such a a chaotic experience in Boston going to another chaotic experience in Baltimore. I was like, I'm out. I don't, mm-hmm. I, I'm a West coast guy. I like the woods and the beach and the, you know, just kind of more of a mellow pace of life. So when I got to Seattle, I was like this, I'm ecstatic to be here out of where it could have happened. And not only that, but 2000 is the first full year of Safeco. So you're no longer inside Kingdom. They opened up Safeco Field mid to late in 1999. And I pitched the last game in the Kingdom. Did you really? Yeah. Yeah. What was that experience like? Besides taking the loss, right. um, it was uh, it was great. Um, no, I I absolutely hated the kingdom. Any pitcher should hate the kingdom. I mean, it's turf, so ground balls are hits. Right center field was about three sixty five. I don't know what the measurement said. Um, the last game I was there, I threw a cut fastball into Ken Griffey. He hit it, but he didn't hit it as good as where it ended up. Um, but he hit it in I think the fourth deck in right field, right down the line. So it was probably a three hundred and sixty five five-foot fly ball, 
that went in the upper tank, and everybody's like ooh and an on. I'm like, I hate this place. <laughs> right. So unfortunately, I was a little too honest with the hometown papers when they came to ask me. Oh, it's so nostalgic. Da da da. Are you gonna? Miss? I said if I could be the one to push the plunger to blow it up, I'd be more than happy. <laughs> and that didn't go over real well. <laughs> well, things did go well in 2000. Uh, you get you go to the All Star game. You're 17 and 10, a 4.51 ERA. The first time you went to the All Star game, you did not get into it. That was at Coors Field, but you did in 2000. Scoreless fourth inning. You retire Jeff Kent. Andres Galarraga gets a single, then Jim Edmonds and Jason Kendall are retired as well. What are some of your best memories of both that inning and just that experience? You know, it's um, the all-star experience for me, um, you know, made two of them. Um, The one I'm bitter about is I didn't make the 2001 all-star team, which would have been at Safeco Field in front of friends, family, coaches, people that really supported me through my whole career. Um, I was 11-2 and at the break. And Joe Torrey said, I'm not taking anybody that's pitching on Sunday. So oh. I was 11-2. and two. Brad Radke was 10-3 and three and leading the league in ERA. So both of us should have been considered as, sun, as all-star starters, and neither of us made the team. So um, that, that, that aside, I mean, 98, um, I, think, I think with my style, with, I, was, I was a good team pitcher. Like, I, I didn't have plus stuff. I wasn't striking out the world. I wasn't doing it. I just won games. I, I gave our team a chance to win, and we won a lot of those games. And, and so it's a tip of my cap to my teammates and how they played for me. Um, and so going to the All-Star game in 98 with the Rockies in, in Colorado was unbelievable. I mean, just you're in awe. I mean, you're lockering with all the great players that you've grown up with watching, and um, you get a chance to interact with some of them. Um, Fred McGriff might be the nicest human ever um, you know, people like that that you're just like, oh my God, that's you know, Fred McGuire, that's Travis Fryman, oh my, that's Alex Rodriguez, it's you know all these stars, and why am I here? <laughs> you know, were you a guy who's going to try and get some memorabilia that you've still saved to this day from those All Star yeah, games? Yeah, I've got. I, I, you know what? At some point, I need to have a build a cool man cave because I've got a lot of really neat things, um, and it wasn't anything that I went out to try to do, but. When you go to the All-Star game, a lot of times they'll give you a bucket of hats, like a, a, a bin, like 30 hats. And so you trade hats with people and different things like that. And the guys are all really good about um, trading memorabilia with your peers and mm-hmm. stuff. And so, yeah, I've got some really cool things. It wasn't anything I went out of my way to do. But just the overall experience. I mean, sitting in the bullpen in Colorado, I knew I probably wasn't going to pitch and uh, uh, just the way it all lined up. Um, and I just, I had my feet up and I just enjoyed the experience. (laughs) Um, Atlanta was a whole different story. Smoking hot in July. Um, you know, we're watching Sammy Sosa hitting balls farther than any human ever. I mean, in in Colorado, Jim Tomey hit one up above the mile high sign or the mile high line in right center field. And we're like, yeah, I don't want to pitch here. I'm good with this. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, so just the whole experience, and it's different because I had my daughter at the time. My oldest daughter was was a baby. I mean, she was only, gosh, she wasn't even a year. I don't think. Maybe she was a year and a half, and she fell asleep in my arms because it was that we all walked out from behind the center field wall with our children, mm-hmm. um, and she was falling asleep in my arms. It was and you know really cute, and but you're sweating to death. It was like love Atlanta, but not in the summertime. Right? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about. Uh, the end of the 2000 season, going in the last day of the regular season, uh, the A's and the Mariners, and there's a third team that all have a chance. The A's have a half-game lead. You started on the last day of the regular season. You pitched into the sixth inning. The Mariners won. The A's also won. But 
Tell me about pitching game 162 with a chance to go to the playoffs. Yeah, it's funny because a lot of people talk about, oh, you pitched in the playoffs. You did. I said no, the biggest game I've ever pitched was that 2000 game, the last game of the season. To, to uh, if we win, I think Cleveland was the team that was out. Mm-hmm. Like they had to, they had to hope that Oakland and us both lost or something. And the A's had some half game where they might have had to fly somewhere to make up a game yeah, potentially it, or something it, like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah, if we would have lost, then they would have had a playoff game. Might have been with Cleveland. Might have been. Um, but yeah, I remember, yeah, going into the, and it was, it, Anaheim wasn't a place I ever pitched very well. Um, they had some really good left-handed hitters. Garrett Anderson comes to mind right away. Erstad, Spezio, that, that group of guys. And I struggled versus left-handed pitchers. And I think I gave up two, maybe three runs in the first inning, got kind of settled down and, and limped into the sixth and gave us a chance to win. And, and our guys, I don't even remember really what happened after that other than we won. Well, I had the benefit of looking at baseball reference. And uh, <laughs> that entire month of September, so your last four starts in August of that year were not good. But then September, you went six and a third, three runs, seven innings, one run, seven innings, two runs, six innings, four runs, complete game, six hit shutout. And then in the final, five and two-third innings, two runs. So when it was on the line, you were pitching well, extremely well. Is there a difference, September baseball, that you felt that you could, that you could sense? You know, it's funny because I think if you look at if you look at the really big picture, I think Aprils and Mays were really good for me. June and July were mediocre. Augusts were always bad. Septembers were good, and Octobers were bad. Um, not that I pitched terrible, but I got no wins, <laughs> so it's bad. Um, you know, it's it's. I don't know. I don't know if if it kind of that that. You know, cool September feel. I mean, it's a, it is a different feel at the ballpark. It's um, falls coming in. It's crisp. I mean, maybe it rejuvenates you a little bit or or something. Or maybe other guys are tired. Maybe the hitters are tired. So because I was a fastball curveball guy, I pitched front to back, um, varying my speeds that way. Maybe they were tired and so they weren't seeing the ball as well as they were mid season or something. I don't I don't know what it was, but yeah, I was I was fortunate enough to to play well in September. Yeah, and so you still go to the playoffs that year, and this is your hometown team, right, after everything that happened with Baltimore, and now your hometown team and you're in the playoffs. Like, oh, yeah. that's, the, that's the childhood dream. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, and, and you know, we, 2000, you know, we get, and, and we ran of the Monster Yankees. I mean, in 2000, in 2001, in 98, in 99. I mean, every time I went to the playoffs, you're, you're facing these pinstripe mm-hmm. monsters. And, um, yeah, but you're you're at home, you've got, I mean, the city is electric. Um, the city is actually a really big baseball city, but there's so much to do in the summertime. And you know, because you know you've got winter coming with rain, it's they're outside doing stuff. And if you're not very good, they're not going to come watch. Yeah. Well, um, you did pitch well in the division series. You pitched the clincher, seven and third innings, one run. It's a walk off winner at home. You sweep the White Sox. Carlos Guillen singles in Ricky Henderson, and the celebration is on. Yeah, yeah. What What are some of the wildest, most memorable moments of of your champagne celebrations that that stand out? <laughs> you know, the funny part is 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 uh, so Jamie Moyer was a really good friend of mine. Um, is a really good friend of mine, and we crossed paths in Boston back in the day. So when when we had the celebrations, it was kind of like me and the old guy were over in the corner, you know, watching everybody else get silly and you know throw. Uh, throw people in the ice cooler and different things like that yeah no it's uh we were involved but i wasn't that involved but okay. that way i don't have any i don't have any crazy we did we i think we came out on the field 
I think it might have been in 2001 when we clinched. We came out on the field, and it was we had the American flag because it was 9-11 and, and that whole deal, and, and that was pretty touching because it was at home, and, you know, we, we did a kind of a walk as a team, a quiet celebration. It was a little, That was a little more uh, emotionally intense, but we didn't – no craziness. Yeah, I am going to ask you about that a little bit more. Um, I remember as, as a writer, it was either my first or second year, and one of the older writers uh, pulled me aside, and he's like, okay, look, here's the deal with the, the champagne celebrations. He's like, okay, they're going to go crazy. They're going to jump up and down. Just stay over here in the corner and trust me. At a certain point, they're going to look around like, anyone want to interview me because I'm tired? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And then, and then, do not be the local writer that is in the clubhouse every day because after you spray your teammates and they're already soaking wet, you're looking to spray somebody that's dry. Uh huh. Yep. Whether whether it's a GM or anybody that you deem as friendly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, so 2001 Mariners. That is uh, that off season is when Alex Rodriguez leaves as a free agent to go to the Rangers, and so Randy Johnson, Ken Griffey Jr., and Alex Rodriguez within about a three three and a half year stretch, the three icons of Seattle baseball are gone. Ichiro comes over from Japan. What did you initially hear about him, and what were your thoughts about who this guy is from coming over from Japan? I have got the best story ever about Ichiro. I got several of those, but. Um, yeah, no, here comes Ichiro with all the fanfare. You know, you've hear, heard about this player. You're so into your own career, you, 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 haven't, you don't really have time to branch out and really study Jap, Jap, Japanese culture in terms of baseball. And you just know he's really good. He's supposed to be the best player ever coming over. And he comes over and you look at him and you're like, this guy? Like, you know, he's 5'11", 160 pounds. And you're like, he doesn't, he, he, you know, okay, whatever. He gets in spring training and he is literally hitting fly ball after fly ball after fly ball to left field. And we're like, what is, like, okay. We're, and we're all trying to figure out. He's really nice guy. Um, very limited English. He understands more than he speaks, but he's trying to engage on a, on a reasonable level. But you also have to understand, like, imagine taking, um, you know, somebody like, you know, a Derek Jeter type of person, whoever you can think of as a better example. Take Mike Trout out of there and go send him to Japan. The best player in the game. And now that's what we got in Ichiro, but we didn't know it. We but also sent 500 media members who's going to chronicle every single thing that oh he Oh, gosh, does. yeah. It, it's hilarious. Every time he took a swing, there was 5,000 pictures taken. I mean, it sounded it sounded like a swarm of bees from all the cameras. It was unbelievable. He's hitting fly ball after fly ball. So this goes on for about a week. And finally, Lou Pinella, who's known to be a little bit fiery, goes over. Uh, son, uh, I think you need to start driving the ball a little bit more. I mean, you might be a turn on it once in a while. He literally raises his fingers to his lips and goes, shh, I have plan. <laughs> Lou lost his mind. Now, this is in front of Jay Buhner, who is the, the biggest class clown you've ever met in your life. Mark McMore, right behind Jay Buhner's class clowns. Edgar Martinez. This is in front of all the real guys. I have plan. Yeah, I have plan. You better have a plan, son. And it wasn't quite uh, put that way, but it was a lot more colorful. It was hilarious. And then he goes on to hit get 200 hits. I mean, it was unbelievable. I think I remember opening day, there was the legendary throw that gets Terrence Long at, at third base. Where the throw, and like Terrence Long has this look on his face like he's turning around like, where did that ball just come from? And that's when it was, okay, so he can throw. And then like every day it was something else. What? The funny part is go back and watch the video of the throw. That's me running by him late. <laughs> it was Whoever hit it hit a ground ball through the four hole at first. I took one or two steps towards first, then realized, oh, i got to get behind third for the backup. So I turn. I'm running by the mound, and I hear this sound. 
It's literally a zzzz. And I look up, and the ball's in David Bell's glove at third base, and Terrence is out by 25 feet. And we're all looking around like, where did that come from? You know, and each is just in right field, just kind of smiling like, yep, that's what I do. <laughs> that season, the Mariners start 20-4, and four, then 31-9, and nine, then 47-12. and 12. It was June 16th, and you already had a 20-game lead in the standings. How many times did you sit back and go, I can't believe we are winning this many games? Oh, it, every day. Um, we, Jamie Moyer and I, we pulled the five starters. You know, we all went over in the corner one day before the season started. We said, hey, we know we're going to struggle scoring runs this year. We've lost some big, you know, we lost Alex in the middle of our lineup. It's going to be, all you can do is control what you can control, pitch and keep our team in the game. It might be one to nothing a lot of days, you know, hopefully it's five to four, whatever. Just keep us close. That was the starter's plan. Little did we know the epic onslaught of offense that was coming out of our group, and it was unbelievable. Um, you know, Mark Mackamore, you know, as we're going on this run, we'd be down by three runs in the – or we, five runs in the fifth. He'd yell, hey, down by five in the fifth. We only need them. Come on, let's go get them. Boom, we'd score five. Uh, you know, down by two in the seventh. Hey, boys, only need three to win. Boom, we'd get three. It was – it was magical. I mean, that's, that's the only way to put it. And especially, again, you're in your hometown, and that's a year where, okay, you are playing well, so they're not going to go on the lake. Oh, yeah. They're not going to get on the boats. Like, they're going to come see you. The Mariners led the league in attendance that year. Yeah. You hosted the All-Star game. That's, that, was bas- that was as good as it's ever going to get. Oh, yeah. Without, I mean, I don't I, – you know, you're, you're, now that I'm removed from it by, you know, 18 years now, it, I can appreciate that. Um, when you're living in the moment and you're and you're just grinding because it's a process, 162 game season. You, you know you're going to have some ups and downs. Well, we never had the down till we ended up playing the Yankees in the, in the ALCS. Um, but it's it, in the moment you don't appreciate as much as I do now. Okay, so on Monday, September 10th, the Mariners win 5-1 at Anaheim. Mm-hmm. You had started September 5th. Were you scheduled to start on 9-11? I was scheduled to start on 9-11. Tell me about that morning and that day for you. We, <laughs> this is actually, it, it, it's so, it, maybe it gives a little insight into how selfish um, pro athletes are because it's, your world revolves around you. And, and as a starting pitcher, it's every five days, it's you. It's all about you, you getting your start to keep your team playing well, whatever. We're in, um, we're in Anaheim. We're actually out in Newport Beach is where the team put us up. Um, I had my daughter with me at my time. My wife at the time was there. Um, and I, so I always slept in that day, just sleep in, wake up whenever you wake up. So they got up and they left and they went over to the mall to walk around, whatever. And I get a phone call and it's her. She's like, get up and turn on the TV. And I'm mad. I'm like, what are you waking me up for? I'm supposed to pitch today. I turn on the TV just about the time the second plane hits the, the, the tower. And like, you know, obviously you're in shock and it's it's crazy and all that. And they come back to the room and you're trying to process all of this. But in my mind, I'm like, well, I got to start today. I got to start. Like I didn't process the full picture. And it was, it's like I said, it's a little insight into the selfishness that you have to have as a pro athlete. But after the fact, we're stuck in Anaheim. Um, flights are shut down. We don't even know what's going on. I actually looked into buying a car because I was going to buy a car anyway. I said, well, we'll just buy a car. We'll drive home. Um, the Mariners somehow got us. We were one of the first planes in the air on the West Coast. Um, they got us on a plane, got us home, and, and then obviously things, you know, the, the totality and the reality of everything that set in. Did um, you ever make it to the ballpark that day, or was everything done at the hotel? Good question. I don't, I don't remember. We may have gone to the ballpark, 
but I don't I don't remember. Yeah. I remember I was I was covering the Giants at the time for the Oakland Tribune, and we were in Houston. The Monday was a day off. I remember flying in. I remember the, the day before, that Sunday, Bonds hit his 61st, 62nd, and 63rd home runs at Coors Field. And I remember thinking, he's going to do this. I need to, like, mentally get ready, but also with, like, my editors. Like, we really got to start planning on he's going to break this record. And then I'll never forget the late Nick, Nick Peters, uh, one of my mentors from the Sacramento Bee. He gives me a call. Uh, on the hotel, he didn't even call cell phones. He called the room, and he said, kid, turn on the TV. The blank just hit the fan. Oh, yeah. And I was staying at a hotel where it was a hospital was right across the street, and I heard ambulances nonstop for three days. It had nothing to do with 9-11. It's just yeah. because people were sick, and they're going to the hospital because that's what happens at hospitals. Yeah. But I remember just the entire time just thinking, okay, you're watching this on the TV constantly, and then I'm hearing this, and – yeah, that that's a that's a three day stretch in Houston that that I'll never ever forget. No, I you know that's obviously one of those moments for our generation that you'll never you'll never forget. I mean, we went we went into New York um, in the ALCS um, and we landed, and I got violently sick the first uh, some type of flu, and I don't know if this day if it was emotional finally kind of all put it together for me or if it was actually the debris and the matter in the air from the buildings. Cause there was a lot of that going on. Um, it was just, it was the, I don't know, most awkward, weird place to, to be at that point in time. And then, you know, and it was great for the city that, that the Yankees were who they were and they played as well as they did in one. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, just it's hard to put into words. Baseball took a week off when, when the games restarted, this is when, you know, you're going to the playoffs and there's talk, as there always is, about are you going to break the regular season you know, record? Should you go for the regular season title? Where do you think that you and your teammates' as collective um, energy was with that awkwardness of what's going on in the country and now we're playing baseball again? Well, I think, I think for baseball players in general, I think the, the clubhouse is a place of refuge. Um, whether you have things going on at home or your kids are sick or whatever's going on in your life, when you go into that clubhouse, it's, it's just a place to be you amongst your peers. And, and it's, I think that's all of us use that as kind of a place to, to kind of relax from the, the stress and tension of what was going on in the nation at the time. Um, and then, you know, once you get back into your groove of playing, that's just kind of what it is. Um, you just kind of, you know, all right, I'm back into my rhythm, my routine, and it just moves forward. You started to talk about it when you clinched the division, and it was a more somber um, celebration with the American flag. What are some of your other memories about just, okay, we've won the division title, which we knew we were going to do for a long time, and everything that's going on in the world? Yeah, Lou Lou was, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge Lou Pinnell fan. I mean, just the way he sees life and baseball and, and everything, it, and, and the way he treated us um, as men um, fighting through all that. He he sat us down um, and said, basically, guys, this here's the deal, is that, you know, this is what, you know, if you want to go crazy and celebrate, then that's fine. That's you, that's what you want to do. But I I think we're on the verge of doing something really special. I think we need to honor America and New York and everything that's happened respectfully. But at the same time, too, you need to enjoy yourself. And then you also need to plan for a bigger goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of set the tone for everything. And it was it was a really poignant meeting for us to, to sit back as players and go like, okay, here's the totality. We have a bigger goal. And we need to be respectful for what's going on. And nobody's clinched this early, so it's going to, you know, we don't, you know, hey, have a little class, like act like you've done it before, and, and let's just roll forward. 
The team ended up setting the American League record for most wins and tying the Major League record. Did you want? Were you, were you on board with yes? Let's continue to push hard and try and break this record, or were you more like let's, you know, maybe limit some innings or let guys not start as many games? Or where did you fall on that? Um, you know what's um, interesting? I think I pitched the last game of the season and we didn't win. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's uh, I. It, it that's the balancing. If, when you clinch too early. You know how are you going to play? Like, what's the momentum? And as as baseball's playing out, played out since we've gotten the wild card, the wild card winners are forced to be reckoned with because they are playing every night for their lives, and they're, the the you know that momentum just carries them through the playoffs. And and I think that we were worried about that. We were we were consciously concerned that, that might be where we're at because we've got to ramp it back up mm-hmm. again. But you did. You won the division series, and then once again you run into the Yankees. Um, well, Cleveland took us to five games in the division series. That's right. And so it was it was a, it was a hard. They had really good teams at the time, Tome and and Lofton and Bayerga, and you know that group of guys were really good. Alomar, both Alomars, I think, were still there. Um, so it's yeah, we we struggled to 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 win those five games, but we won it. So you're coming out the backside. All right, fine, we got the momentum. We're we're, we're ready to go. Carlos Guillen had tuberculosis. There was a fear that uh, the entire clubhouse would get infected. Yeah. I remember that. Edgar Martinez pulls a groin in that Indian series, so oh. that doesn't help. Um, yeah, and then you run into the Yankees again. That so that series went six, right? Yes. Yeah. Were you scheduled to go Game Seven? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was um, historically like if you said pick one team that you don't want to pitch to to bet your children's lives on, it, the Yankees just because I came up in Boston. I, I mean, I had thousand innings against them. I don't know what it was, but it felt like it, and I struggled to win and they were very good mm-hmm. i mean that was the mid-90s run of the, you know the four world series and the whole deal but um yeah i i struggled my whole career against them but i felt ready to go we just didn't didn't work out yeah. that way what else from your playing career in the seattle mariners organization really stands out that i've not asked you about <sighs> um realistically kind of the way i look at my career is, is all the great players i've played with um you know we had that 2000 team we brought john olerud who was a teammate of mine in college as well back to the mariners um and he gold glove defender and he hit 300 plus and was awesome um edgar martinez is the consummate professional hitter um battling eye issues his whole career um leg issues and he performs like he does um you bring over ichiro who has to fight culture expectation um, and really carrying the weight of Japan on his shoulders with him, and he fits in well. You, you add um, the Mike Camerons of the world, who are super talented, and you talk about crossing barriers. I mean, you would never laugh so hard on a bus ride when Mike was on the – Mike literally had the mic of the bus, uh-huh. and he would do this little rap song, and he would call you out. And it was the funny – he'd call himself out, good and bad. You know, like, um, you know, like, you know, something like, hey, Seeley, if you wouldn't have – given up 10 runs we would have been here two hours ago and been sleeping by now you know and you'd just be dying laughing and um just the 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 camaraderie of the team and how close that team gets which is the hardest thing the the chemistry of a team is hard to to build around and pat gillick was able to do that he got the right people they fit the right roles and you know it's awesome any other ichiro suzuki stories that you're willing to share with us (laughs) you know um Probably the one of the funniest ones was we were living in um, my wife at the time and I we had one daughter 
We were living in Bellevue. Um, I had a house down south, about an hour south of um, Seattle. And so we just were renting an apartment in Bellevue. And I had gone duck hunting in the morning and just, like, I drove up, saw my buddies. We duck hunted in the morning. I came back, and I had some duck breasts all breasted out in a nice plastic bag. And um, and I'm actually a pretty good wild game cook, so I was kind of fired up. I'm going to do this. I come walking into the apartment. I've got a shotgun in its case over my shoulder. I'm wearing my camo jacket. I've got kind of blood on my hands because I've been, you know, I took out the meat of the, the ducks. And I look up, and it's the entire Japanese contingent with Ichiro, his wife, the interpreter, half the front office of the Mariners, and Jennifer's holding her daughter, and she turns around and looks at me and goes, did you know Ichiro's coming to look at the apartment today? <laughs> and I'm like... Um, and then I'm like, you know, I put the ducks in the, in the sink. I slide the gun over by the refrigerator. And I'm thinking how classic American, every American owns a gun story. Like, like, oh my goodness. He has no idea what he's gotten into, does he? So, you know, something like that. Did Ichiro ever get any of this duck? Did you no, ever share any of it? No, no chance. <laughs> I like to hunt. I didn't say I was a good hunter. Right. My meat is very precious. All right, the fifth inning is also about Seattle, but this is, uh, I don't know how this one's going to go, but I want to talk to you about the music scene in Seattle. Yeah. Pearl Jam's 10 and Nirvana's Nevermind were released in late 1991, and uh, they become huge stars in in 1992. You're playing minor league baseball back east, and meanwhile, your hometown not only becomes the epicenter of music, but it becomes the epicenter of fashion, because everyone starts wearing flannels, right? (laughs) Um, what was it like being 3,000 3, miles away as your kind of sleepy hometown all of a sudden becomes the epicenter of music? Well, see, you have to understand, I was wearing flannel in Seattle way before wearing flannel was cool. So that's just You wore it because it was cold. Exactly. It's wet and cold and flannel works. <laughs> so that was, uh, yeah, no, it, I remember walking across campus at Washington State University and seeing written in chalk. I wasn't able, I wasn't old enough to go to the bars, but Alice in Chains performing at the Cavern. Well, like, who's Alice in Chains? What's this? And obviously they became right behind mm-hmm. Nirvana and that group as being superstar grunge band. Um, so it was, yeah, it was bubbling up. It was coming. Um, obviously I'm a huge Pearl Jam fan. I don't know who wouldn't be. Um, but, yeah, it's it's uh, it was really, really cool. Did you get into, like, the er, like the Mother Love Bone and Mud Honey and uh, the Melvilles? Did you did you get into, like, that really early, early grunge? Well, Mother Love Bone obviously was split up from different band members, right? Right. And then, and then Soundgarden, um, you know, I know a guy, um, Ben Shepard, his sister went to school with us, and he went to Bainbridge Island High School, so they were right across. So we have, you know, you always kind of know somebody that kind of came in that scene. Um, but it was... Uh, you know, I I was into it. I don't probably you know you never know what's how it's going to roll out from there. But it was uh, yeah. I mean, when Pearl Jam ten came around, that was I mean that's that's still on on my playlist on my uh, phone. Yeah, when I, when I was in the dorms at San Diego State, if you walked down the hallway, you would hear Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Soundgarden. Like like you couldn't go more than four doors without hearing somebody play it somewhere. Exactly, and Eric Plantenberg was probably. Uh, the leader of the whole group coming, <laughs> right? coming, coming down from Seattle to pitch down at San Diego State. Yeah, exactly. Did you ever get to see Pearl Jam or Nirvana in concert live? You know what? I never have. Okay. Um, so they are big baseball fans, Pearl Jam mm-hmm. um, And some of the, the strength coach was, that was there at the time, um, and um, you know Eddie Vedder would come out and take batting practice and stuff, and I just never kind of overlapped with that stuff. 
That's too bad. I, I agree. Yeah, you got to get to know Theo Epstein <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. Theo and, and, and Eddie Vedder are like besties now. Yep. Uh, okay, inning six, Ricky Henderson stories. Now, the rule is it can't be something that you heard from somebody else. Like that John Olerud story is fake, everyone. That's not a real story. The one about the helmet and the Mets and the Mariners, it's a great story, but it's not real. I need a Ricky Henderson story. I know you guys were only teammates for a couple of months, but Ricky Henderson, I have his plaque right here behind me from the Hall of Fame in his 1985 tops, the jumbo. He was my favorite player growing up. I need a Ricky Henderson story. I'll fast forward to my Mets days, 2007. So Ricky's doing some coaching with the Mets down in their minor league system. We come out to uh, – I'm with Sean Green, great outfielder, right? I mean, long-time um, multi-all-star type player, right? And we're walking out on the field together, and he starts laughing. I'm like, and what's up, Sean? He goes, check it out. We look out there, and Ricky Henderson is teaching um, – oh, I'm blanking on his name. Young kid um, that came up flashing the pan. Um, uh, Timo Perez? No, Milt uh, – Anyway, the guy who hit the home run and then high-fived all the Mets fans down the line. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, was teaching him how to catch the balls behind his back. <laughs> like, like, with his, like the ball's coming in and then come back and then pimp it and slap his leg. And I'm like, Ricky, he can barely walk and tie his shoes, and you're teaching him how to pimp fly balls. Like, <laughs> stop it. <laughs> but he, I tell you what, I, when Ricky came over um, to Seattle in that trade, he literally, his first at bat, he hit a home run. I mean, his, even, even at, when he was older in his career and he wasn't what Ricky was early, what Ricky was, right? See, mm-hmm. there you go, right. reference to him. Um, it, was, it was amazing. His clutch performances were unbelievable. What about him just as a teammate in the clubhouse? I mean, I, I've been around a little bit to see him interacting with people, and I feel like once or twice a year he ends up in some PCL city where I'm at. And the great part about Ricky is that he knows that everyone's looking at him and smiling, so he smiles and waves back. He's coaches first for a couple of innings. He'll just hang out in the first row and just talk to people during games. Oh, yeah. he. You know, not knowing, you know, here he comes from, I mean, he is on track to be this Hall of Fame type player, and he was just so accessible. He was very likable. He liked the attention. He liked to talk. Um, and he just always had a smile on his face. When I saw him, I mean, I, you know, you hear different stories about different places, but when he was in Seattle, he was great. He was a great teammate. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Inning seven, we're going back to the minor leagues. Consider this a rehab stint. <laughs> we're going to do a rehab stint. <laughs> Done that. Uh, is there a worse, like, bus trip or hotel or just some sort of travel nightmare that stands out about your time in the minor leagues? Bus breaks down or the oh, – I tell you, the, it, it, it's <laughs> – for everybody who thinks, oh, the major league players, oh, they're just they get they're the ones who get all the pay. Look, look at all the people that are left in the minor leagues and the things that they have to endure. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it really is a lot of times if you just outlast your other teammate, you're going to be in a better spot. Uh-huh. I mean, it's it's amazing. I I had a chance to play in New Britain, Connecticut, um, and it was an old, tired, tired ballpark. Um, Beehive Field. Yeah, Beehive Stadium, and this is like three stadiums ago now. You know, that's how long it's been. <laughs> They had the, the pillars that had, like, four shower heads on them. Uh, one pillar didn't work. The other one, only two of the four shower heads worked. So you're in double A. You're thinking, oh, I'm only a, I'm a step and a half away from the big leagues, and you're showering with the hose. <laughs> you know, you're over there just showering, and, like, uh, like I'm looking around like, what in the hell is going on? But, um, you know, we the bus ride from New Britain, Connecticut, to I believe it was Canton, Ohio, was, like, 14 hours. I mean, you – Literally jump on the bus after the game and try to sleep if you can, but you got 25 guys slammed on one bus. Um, you got people snoring. You got loud music being played that's probably not your variety of music that it's you enjoy. It's not Pearl Jam. It's not Pearl Jam. Um, 
you know, back then you probably didn't even have a TV on the bus. Definitely no Wi-Fi. We didn't have that. So you're trying to read a book at three in the morning as you're rolling across the country and you've got all kinds of music blaring and, you know, it, it, it was, it's interesting times, but it makes you appreciate all your teammates and the different, I mean, it was, we, I mean, I've seen fights on the bus. I've seen, you know, birthday parties on the bus. I mean, you've seen everything on the bus. It's, it's, it's hilarious. They're, those are times you don't forget. My favorite bus story is, uh, this was about three or four years ago and it was a pretty easy one. We're busing from Memphis to Nashville and Glen Ellen Hill, the isotopes manager gets on the microphone and he starts tapping it and he starts playing around. You know, he's like tapping. He's like, does this work? <laughs> hello? Hello? Is anyone awake? And he says, Dustin Garneau, Dustin Garneau, you're going to the major leagues. It was, and the bus just erupts, right? It's just pandemonium. And, and Dustin comes running up. He's like, you better not be messing with me and just hugs all around. And you no, know, just because it's so rare nowadays where like everyone can kind of experience that. Uh, yeah. And that was so cool. Yeah. It, it's, it's a, um, some of the minor league managers, I mean, that is, that's what they, they manage for, right? Mm-hmm. That, that thrill of being able to tell a very good player the first time he's going to the major leagues. I mean, it's, it's, it's got to be an amazing experience for a manager to do that. Yeah, and, and like I said, you're confined on the bus. It's all your team, and here you go. The movie Bull Durham came out in 1988. You were drafted in, what, 91? Is that what you thought that minor league baseball was going to be like, what you saw in that movie? I was drafted in 1988 out of high school in the 37th round by the Minnesota Twins. Um, the scout that drafted me pleaded with me, do not see this movie before you make your decision. It's nothing like it. So... As we all know, it is exactly like it. <laughs> the play, and, and at the time, I mean, what they were picking out and, and playing minor league baseball in the early 90s was very, very similar. I'm sure there's a lot of things that have changed kind of how these kids are nowadays. But, um, yeah, it, 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 I didn't know what to, what to expect in the minor leagues. Um, but it wasn't, you know, obviously uh, Bull Durham's a movie. That's, that's not true. Um, I was first-round draft pick by the Red Sox. Um, draft goes by whatever day it is. You know, you get a couple days of draft. I don't hear anything. I'm getting phone calls from reporters and agents and, you know, hey, have you heard anything? What's going on? I was like, no, I haven't heard anything. I was supposed to be a first-round pick. Nobody's called me. I don't know. Three days go by. I don't hear anything. So finally, a reporter goes, just so you know, you didn't hear it from me, but you were drafted in the first round. I said, that was three days ago. She goes, yeah, it was. I'm surprised I haven't called you. Wow. So you're like, whoa, wait a minute. What's going on? I get the I, – I finally get – Signed. I'm on on board to go down to Fort Myers, or as actually Winter Haven, Florida, at the time. Um, you're going to get picked up by a limo. Oh, sweet! They're going to pick me up in a limo. Yeah, here comes the airport shuttle van with 17 other people in the limo. <laughs> you know, and you and you roll through, and it's just it's it was it's an eye-opening experience to go from a quality Division One baseball program like Washington State had one of the best fields in the country at the time to playing in Winter Haven, Florida, which Basically, the Red Sox left because the city wouldn't upgrade the facilities after 35 years. Yeah. <laughs> when the first time did you you pitched at Durham, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. When you yeah. Were, you were in, that's when they were still single A before they yep. became triple A. Yeah. So what was it like to go to see this ballpark after seeing the movie? Oh, it was it's it's surreal. It's hilarious. You know, you're looking up. There's the bowl. There's you're like, oh my goodness. There's where's all this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. The 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 funny part about it is that, that time was when all the Braves young players were coming through. Mm-hmm. Javi Lopez, Chipper Jones, Klesko, that group of guys. So, like, you were like, oh, this is a really cool ballpark. And then you're looking in the dugout going, oh, my God, those guys are really good. You better be careful. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, how did you get told for the first time that you were going to the major leagues? Who told you? Where were you? 
my one of my college teammates, Joe Urban, uh, was a sports agent, um, and I happened to be. I think I was in Norfolk um, at the time, so he had an office in D.C. and so he came and picked me up, and we we're just hanging out. We went to lunch, and he told me, he "Goes I." I've got to kind of keep you around the office because I think something's going to happen. I'm like, come on, Joe, what's going on? He's like, oh, you might get a call today. I just want it. So I was in Joe's office when the Red Sox called and said they were going to call me up to the big leagues. Who was who made the call? Um, I think it was Lou Gorman okay. at the time, who was the Red Sox GM. Yeah, and then this is this is the dream. This is what about three years later? Who do you who do you call? Uh, what what happens next? Um, you know, it's absolute panic because. I don't have a sports coat. I don't have a collared shirt. I mean, we're traveling in AAA. You know, you're so <laughs> run to the mall, grab the sport coat, grab a suit. You know, grab it off the rack at J Crew or whatever store was available. You're taking off. You don't have cell phones, mm-hmm. so you know, um, calling. I think Joe actually called my parents and told them to come, um, and then so they flew across the country. My best friend from high school and still my best friend today. He flew. He flew um, to Boston. Um, yeah, really, really surreal because I, we're in Pawtucket, which is drivable. So I literally drove up like on a Wednesday, whatever the day was, and did the bucket and kind of met the guys and went home because I, I wasn't active, so okay. I couldn't be at the field. And then next, and I hadn't had spring training, so I didn't know anybody. I literally show up in this club. Steve Lyons was the only; he'd been in AAA for a couple weeks, and he's the only player I knew in the entire clubhouse. Well, he's a good one to know. Yeah, I love Steve. Yes, I did a podcast with him this past uh, December. Yeah. I love Steve. Yeah, he's no, he's a great, he's a great guy. Um, you know, and you, you walk in, you're looking around. There's Mo Vaughn. There's Mike Greenwell. There's Roger Clemens. There's Frank Viola. <laughs> Danny Darwin. You're like Tony Pena. Like, oh my god, like I'm here. So you're just, are you the type that's just going to be quiet and sit in the corner and just, oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. You just, well, the funny part was the way the the old clubhouse was in Fenway. It was a, it was a rectangle, and if you think about the door being kind of down in the bottom right hand corner of the rectangle, that whole wall was coaches. There was only two, there was, actually, there was only one open locker. The first locker was Greg Harris, the right-hander, mm-hmm. uh, ambidextrous. Right. Um, the next locker was mine, and then the third locker was Johnny Pesky's, and then the rest of the coaches. Um, and then every, all the real players <laughs> were over <laughs> in the other corner. But that's a really tiny clubhouse, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Really, really um, interesting to get all those bodies in there. And, and yeah, but, but it also adds to the mystique of Fenway, mm-hmm. of what Fenway used to be, mm-hmm. you know. Don't leave your glove out because when you come back, the rats may have chewed some of the leather off it, things like that. <laughs> All right. We're moving on to inning eight. I think your pitch count is uh, low enough that you can start the eighth inning. Uh, <laughs> inning eight is about winning a World Series when you're hurt. Yeah. So, you, so first of all, you were very good at making free agent decisions. The whole, like, okay, I'm not going to sign with you, Baltimore. I'm going to go to Seattle for these amazing two seasons. And then you sign with the Angels after the 2001 season, and they end up going to the World Series and winning it. Um, you were pitching well. You had a stretch where you started either 33 or 34 games for five consecutive seasons. That basically means you took the ball every five days for mm-hmm. five years. And then a torn muscle in your pitching shoulder near the, near the end of August of that year. Is that right? I actually tore it. I, I tore my labrum in spring training um, of that year. We were, we were, working, on, we were working on throwing a changeup which I recommend to every single young player in the game, learn how to throw a changeup early in your career because it, it just makes life so much easier as a pitcher. Um, Bud Black got me trying to learn the changeup, just was had a hard time with it, and I tore something in my shoulder, and I knew it. And we kind of limped 
through the year. Um, Brian Shear, um, God bless all the physical therapists and trainers that are in baseball because they keep players together more than you even realize. Um, and we made it till about July before things really got bad. Um, and then it just got to the point where I had to have surgery. Wow. So what's it? Were you were you still around because you had surgery? Were you still able to be like a cheerleader? Or, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we we called up um, that year was John Lackey's first year, um, and so John came up, young kid, Texas guy, and we just kind of hit it off, nice little friendship. And as as we started to develop a friendship, and I realized, well, I'm out, like I'm out for the year. Then um, I started doing his game. I, not doing his game plan. I started game planning with him mm-hmm. um, because I always kept a book of I, over all the years and all the teams you, you'd get, you'd have a pre-series meeting. Here's how we're going to pitch them. Well, I always kept notes on that or I'd keep the sheet from the team on how to pitch every team. So I had all this information um, and then I just adapted it to my game. Well, I just took his game and adapted it to my notes and I, we'd, we'd sit down and we'd talk about it every, every time he'd go out and then uh, so once the playoffs started, our little joke was he, you know, he's all geeked up. He's and he's a real fiery type of guy. He had that his whole career, over fiery as a young kid. And he he'd barge out to the, towards the door, and I'd yell, "Lackey, lackey!" And he'd turn around, look at me. I say, "Don't mess with my money. Let's go." And he'd start laughing, and then he'd go out and he dominated. Great performance. Mm-hmm. And he's a great postseason pitcher, like he was his whole career. Did you do that before Game Seven? I mean, yeah, yeah Game Yeah Game oh, Seven. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. No, he just. Why change, right? Uh-huh. I mean, it, it, that's the thing with baseball. There's such a rhythm and flow to the 162 games and playoffs. Why change? Why why make every some? Why make one day way more important than another day? Because that's not how you work on the performance bell curve. It's you got to stay steady. Uh, all these notes, where'd you keep them? You, were they like in a binder and a folder? How organized were all these notes of yours? Um, actually, so by then, you know, that was, you know early 2000s, so I had a, I was into my Mac computers and stuff by then, so I probably had everything on my... I think I still have them if I went and looked for them. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and basic notes, because I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of data and information, but I think we're becoming paralysis by analysis in this game. Um, and I think, you know, the fact when you've got catchers who can't just go one, two, or three, and they have to look at their wrist to figure out what the color-coded sequences are and... You know, OPS percentages. No, a good fastball down and away works every time. Well, if he doesn't swing at it, throw it again. I mean, basic. So you, you try to keep it simple and condensed, so pretty sim- simplistic kind of notes. To yeah. What was the World Series parade like? Oh, my God, it was unbelievable. Uh, was it Disneyland? Yeah, we started We started at Disneyland, got on the floats, went through Disneyland, and then through downtown Anaheim, and then it ended up at the stadium. And I tell you what, it's uh, Anaheim – was was fired up for us it was it was i don't know how many thousands of people were there but it was it was a lot of fun even though you weren't there for the playoffs knowing what you did the first four and a half months did it still feel like did it still feel like yes i'm a world series champion or was it diminished because you it's that's a great discussion and i and i've talked with several other players that have won world series and and everybody's got their own little view on it i i have a tendency to to take it a little less than than being you know full blown I was on the mound I I threw pitches and stuff, um, but you are part of a team and that's really I mean why do we let all of our little leaguers go out and play little league because we want them to be part of a team you 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 win as a team you lose as a team you, you and so when you look at it that way I mean I'm as proud of that World Series ring as I probably ever could have been um, but I do take it with a little bit of a grain of salt because I wasn't the guy on the field did the work that you did with John Lackey 
especially with him starting Game 7 and, and how important he was, did that help you feel even more engaged? Like, I am, in, I am part of this even more? I mean, that's kind of how I always was. Um, you know, you're part of a five-man pitching staff. We shared information. You talk baseball. You, um, you know, you'd stand on the rail, um, especially after spending a couple years with Jamie Moyer. I mean, Jamie, is, it's hard to get him to stop talking baseball. Um, but you were figuring things out together, so that was kind of probably my healing or coping or whatever. This is kind of how I was in terms of committing to the starting staff. Whatever I can do to help, whether I pitched the night before or I didn't pitch for the last month, I'm going to help you try to win today, whatever I can do. All right, we're on to the ninth inning. Complete game for Aaron Seeley today. <laughs> what a rare feat. <laughs> the ninth inning theme is a baseball game that Dodgers fans simply refer to as the 4-plus-1 game. It occurred on Monday, September 18th, 2006 at Dodger Stadium. Going into this day, the Padres had a half-game lead over the Dodgers. It was the 150th game of the season, so 12 were left, including that one. Padres scored four runs in the top of the first off Brad Penny. The Dodgers answered with four runs off Jake Peavy over the next four innings. It was still tied 4-4 entering the eighth. Padres got two, Dodgers got one. Then the Padres got three in the top of the ninth inning, so it's 9-5. According to baseball reference, the Padres have a 95% expected winning percentage at this moment in the game. John Atkins starts the ninth inning for the Padres. Jeff Kent homers. J.D. Drew homers. Fans who had left the stadium started to come back into the stadium. Trevor Hoffman enters. Russell Martin homers. Marlon Anderson homers, and the game is tied. Still nobody out. The next three hitters were retired in order, although Rafael Fercal, people forget this, Rafael Fercal hit a ball to the warning track that almost won it. You're in the bullpen. Explain how that inning unfolds as you're watching in the bullpen. <laughs> it's almost embarrassing because you're in the bullpen, so I'd been kind of back and forth. We'd acquired a bunch of starters at the trade deadline, and that had pushed me to the bullpen full time. And so... You know, I'm 36 years old. I don't have a lot of true pure stuff, so that doesn't play in the bullpen. So, yeah, I'm not pitching. I mean, I'm going to pitch if Brad Penny would have got knocked out in the second. I'm I'm in the game. So, it you know, the game's kind of going along, and we've got all the real bullpen arms pitching. We get to that point. Um, you know, they score, they score three in the top of the ninth, and – I'm just down there, and I think I was one of the last guys left. I don't remember exactly how. Danny Worthen, our pitching coach, goes, hey, come on here, let's get him to throw. And I literally looked at him like, why? Like, they've got – they Atkins started that inning, but they had Linebrink in there who was unbelievable. They had Heath Bell who was unbelievable, and they had the best closer, one of them of all time. It was still, And they, they were all ready to pitch. I'm like, you're crazy. We're not scoring four runs off these guys. And then they went and, um, you know, they hit the first one, and, and Dan looks at me and says, come on. So then I get up. I'm like, I'm not even getting up. So I get up. I walk over, you know, and the stadium's going nuts or whatever, and I'm standing on, on the mound, and Danny's kind of looking at me like, you're going to throw? And I'm like, no. <laughs> and so, boom, they hit the second one. And I was like, hey, just would you please throw, he says. Just please. And so then I'm kind of just kind of throwing, kind of saving my bullets because I'm probably – because I'm thinking if I pitch tonight or I throw my bullpen tonight and I spend a bunch of energy, well, then what happens when somebody gets knocked out the next day? Then I've got to pitch again, and I'm not used to that because it hasn't been my role. They change pitchers. The third one goes. Danny screams at me, 
throw the ball. <laughs> so then, of course, now it's time to get hot. Now you're scrambling. You're getting hot. The fourth one goes. Everybody's going nuts, right? You, you finally, boom, all right, gate's open. Aaron, you're in the game. It's a tie game. Top of the 10th. I end up giving up a run in the top of the 10th. <laughs> and I'm, I'm literally on the mound. And, and unfortunately, it, the guy who drove in the run was Josh Bard, who I broke his bat. Um, and Josh and I have since become very good friends when he was came over with the Dodgers, and now he's the bench coach with the Yankees, and I never hear the end of it because he's the only hit he ever got off me. <laughs> but he drives in the run, and I literally walked off the field into the dugout, and I felt like, I don't know, I just felt like I let down the entire world because, I mean, we had this huge run. We come back, we build it up, and then, of course, Nomar hits a two-run walk-off to win it. And I get the win in one of Dodgers' great games ever. Yeah. What's the? How do you put into perspective that regular season victory with all the other regular season wins of your career? <laughs> you know what? It, it's um, those are moments that happen that you'll never forget. I mean, you just. I mean, come on. How do you forget? I mean, that the the, the high of the high, and then the low of the low, and then you come right back to the high of the high, and I think that's. That's what sports does for us in America. I mean, you ride those emotional roller coasters. Well, even though you felt terrible that you gave up the run, that set the stage to make it even more dramatic because then it would just been the four game. Now it's the four plus one game because of Nomar's <laughs> walk-off home run. <laughs> exactly. That's what I do when I, when I see Nomar because Nomar and I were together in Boston too. Mm -hmm. So when I see him when he's doing uh, his TV gig, I walk by him and say, you're just so lucky I made you famous. <laughs> right. Uh, I'll say you um, – one of my stories. So I think it was the first year that I'm doing post-game Dodger talks. It was either 2008 or 2009. And a guy called up and he said that he went to that game and he got ejected. I forget what he did, whether he threw a pizza or he threw a hot dog. He did something. <laughs> but he admitted that he was drunk and he was, and he was an idiot and he missed that comeback. And he said that inspired him to go to rehab and get clean and sober and he said, again, this was as of 2008, he said yeah. that he has never had a drink of alcohol since and he has never left a game early because of that game. That's amazing. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's the power of sports. Yeah, that is the power of sports. That's a good way to end it. Thanks, Aaron. This was fun. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for having me. That's Aaron Seeley, and this is Life Around the Seams.